Hey everyone, it's Karen here. Anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time. Today, I'm so excited to be broadcasting from the Working Over Time break room, together with Aiden and Raz, and we're really excited to be joined by production partner and good friend Nigel Hetherington. We hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes interlude in our regular season programming. Nigel's an archaeologist who specializes in Egyptian history and culture, and founder of the Past Preservers Media Consultancy and Expert Talent Agency. He's my agent, in fact, and an uncommonly good one, should any of you listeners out there be a like-minded history geek looking to break into or find new opportunities in factual TV programming. You can find Nigel at www.pastpreservers.com. In the break room, we're going to chat about Nigel's work at the crossroads of academic research and popular media. And we'll focus a bit on his experiences as an archaeologist in Egypt's incomparable Valley of the Kings and hear about his fascinating take on ancient Egyptian religious revolution and its surprising relevance in the modern world. So grab a mug of your beverage of choice and we'll see you in the break room. Here we are in the break room, and it's not just Aiden, Raz, and myself, but we got Nigel to join us. And Nigel is our shadowy production partner in crime who's always so busy doing all the things he does, running past preservers, that we haven't been able to lure him by. So, uh, Nigel, thank you so much for coming to join us this week in the break room. You're welcome. It's a Saturday, and I'm on lockdown, so where else am I going to go? Ringing Fair in person. Enough. I love it. I love it. But isn't it nice to hear? I hung new drapes for you. You hung drapes? It's a podcast, Karen. Drapes in the oh, break drapes. room. Yeah, I Guys, think we're in the break here. room. I am obviously curtains. more um, enthusiastic about this. Sorry. <laughs> the cold curtains, dear. Oh, you know, the language, the common language that divides us, Nigel. Mm, exactly. I don't think anyone would ever use the word drape. Unless they Actually, were draping something all the over time. themselves. And in no. fact, it was used in the discussion of the decorating changes that Joe Biden made to the Oval Office. That the Oh yeah, Americans, the drapes, I'm saying, but that uh, yeah, I think outgoing... most Brits wouldn't even recognize what a drape is. Uh, you drape something over you, but you don't have drapes. Well, you, you could drape something long over a window. No, you could pull down the curtains and make a frock. Okay, show. how about this? Forget the drapes, forget the curtains. I hung up the most amazingly snazzy Venetian blinds for you. Okay, now, will you tell us a little bit about some of the misconceptions about Egyptian culture and particularly this animal thing? Did they worship animals? Well, one of the biggest, biggest myths about ancient Egypt is the fact that they worshiped animals and that they worshiped a multiple variety of gods and deities they actually worshipped there was only one god um sorry to blow that one but there was only ever one god for them and basically the animals and the other statues you see and the other what we call gods is actually manifestations or whatever very big word of god they they put it that man human beings couldn't understand the magnitude of god could never ever understand it how powerful God was, what God was. So the only way to do that is to is to show that through animals. 
and other figures. So basically, if you show a lion, you're showing the strength of God, you're showing oh. a cat, you're showing this. So it's a way of getting to God. It's they're not gods. They were not worships. Uh, you could say almost there might be, you know, a sort of certain deities, whatever. They were certainly put in people's houses and were part of their worshiping. But to God itself, the uh, hidden one. In fact, it's now believed that it was a crime um, to make an image of God. So therefore, if you can't, if you can't make an image of God, obviously the statues are not gods. Um, and in fact, some archaeologists or Egyptologists now believe that it's a mistranslation even of the hieroglyphs, that there was never such a thing as plural gods. It was only God. So um, huge misconception and actually tied up in colonialism and uh, the Victorian era and that kind of thing. Um, Egypt had to be separated away from the modern civilization. Yeah, the Victorians obviously were obsessed with the Greeks and the Romans. They saw Western civilization coming from them, whereas the Greeks and the Romans saw their civilization come from Egypt and certainly heavily influenced anyway but that was kind of written out so all that is coming back now which is wonderful everybody's re-looking really at Egypt in the light of its contribution to the outside world as well and they're not just these crazy cat loving people they were I have I have follow-up questions um so the, this hidden god this hidden god have a name well some people think it's Atum so it's uh, that's the uh, the hidden one uh, or it can just be literally God. So, and I, I would uh, on the spot don't actually know the hieroglyph for God. No, that's but, cool. Um, it's yeah. People believe that a tomb is called the hidden one. So there's some people believe that's the ultimate sort of God. That's the one they're worshiping. So when you get, for instance, the big sort of claim is that for monotheism is that is with Akhenaten and the king that declares there is only. Um, one god through him and his, his family, um, Arten, the rays of the sun, um, he claims everything, which is in a kind of a, a, a nice little prophecy that all the power and energy of the world comes from the sun, which of course is true. Um, oh, he was saying, so yes, exactly. And he had little hands on the rays of the sun, which was quite sweet. Um, but what he's doing, you see, Akhenaten to me, and this is my TV show that I want to make, Akhenaten is Henry VIII of Britain, <gasps> what he's trying to do is to, <laughs> I love it's, it. a, it's a revolution. It's nothing more, nothing less. It's taking the power away from the clergy or the religious um, elite, um, the priesthood, um, which is exactly what Henry VIII did. Henry VIII couldn't care about less about divorcing his wives. He just wanted to get rid of the, the hold of the Vatican um, on British society. Um, and so both of them were doing the same thing. That's why I think uh, parallels in Egypt, in, in Egypt, parallels in life, a good, um, wonderful TV fodder. Wow. I didn't know any of that. That's awesome. My mind has been blown. Yeah, that's really cool. I had some more parallels as well. I think we had Cleopatra and someone, I can't remember who. I, oh, Cleopatra, uh, Hatshepsut and um, Elizabeth I. So that's another parallel. Oh, I love Hatshepsut. Um, of course, I love Elizabeth I. Yeah, she's amazing. And she actually in, insists, she instructs the entire world court to refer to her as king. She's no longer a woman. She is the king. That's mm -hmm. um, awesome, she is right? Honor, which is what Elizabeth does as well. Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, it is exactly her. what Elizabeth does. Yeah. 
So I mean, it's still, uh, it's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll ignore the fact that it's unfortunate that that's the, the way to assert ultimate power. But you know, sadly, it was. And I love that that they had the the kahunas to step up and and make those pronouncements within the rules. It would have been nice if Elizabeth could have known Akhenaten. Um, or, um, you know, or known about the Amarna period, because I think it, or Hatshepsut, because of course, the things with the wonderful, the one thing I really, really like about um, the ancient Egyptians is that, you know, when someone, and I call it a full pharaonic removal, um, when they decide that someone is persona non grata and has upset the apple cart, they are so removed from history that it wasn't until the archaeologists discovered Akhenaten and discovered the city of Amarna that actually he was put back into history and the whole Amarna period was put back into history. And the same thing for, uh, for Hatshepsut. She was so carefully removed from history. Yeah, like physically that, effaced, yeah. right? From the monuments. Oh, yeah. And they would have monuments to particularly Tutankhamun and others as far as, you know, Sudan, modern Sudan and modern Israel. And those um, descriptions and inscriptions were removed. So therefore, that means they must have had some kind of central log of every single item and every single inscription and every statue. Um, of course, that's yet to be found. Uh, but when they did remove you, full pharaonic, I mean, it's like, you know, it's no good just deleting your friend on Facebook. You've got to go full pharaonic um, and have them removed like you never knew them. Um, and so until the Victorian era um, and the archaeologists started going to Egypt, and finding objects with these names on, um, they, that's when they were rediscovered and put into history again. So they did an amazing job of hiding them away. Wow. Mm. History has not been kind to women. And men, and men. I mean, Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, the whole Amarna lot were considered poison and they were literally buried. I mean, one of my old boss, Ken Weeks, one of the best Egyptologists in the world, I think, he said that they, the reason that Tutankhamun's tomb is like that, you know, they put him in the ground, they put everything in with him to, related to the family, and then they threw away the key. They didn't want to know anymore. It was all poisoned. Huh. Well, that's, that's why crazy. they will never find another tomb like Tutankhamun. And I'm on record, I will say. They will <laughs> never find another tomb like that because that isn't the way they dealt with tombs. We know that you know, we call it looting and stuff and whatever, but I call it more like recycling. There's no way, in fact, one economist years and years ago worked out there isn't enough gold in the entire planet to put that much gold in every single pharaoh's tomb. It's mm, impossible. Mm -hmm. And so, he, was, yeah. he was like relatively minor pharaohs, so exactly, it kind of yeah. wouldn't make any sense that he had this unbelievably wealthy tomb compared to others. Exactly. Can you even even begin to think like someone like Ramses II, Ramses the Great? Oh my God! Right? It would be crazy. <laughs> or they did put them in and they recycled them. You know, they after a couple of generations when it wasn't, you know, it might have been great grandfather and you forgot about him a bit. You could take the stuff out again and recycle it and reuse it, um, or melt it down and make it into new objects, much like the Romans did when they took it. Um, there's also another statistic which I always forget, but at the at somebody claimed i think that 20 percent of the gold in the world has um old gold has egyptian gold in it um, <gasps> that's amazing really yeah and now of course you can do this weird really weird um, um stuff with the um metal dna can't they so they can actually take a sample of any um precious metal i believe and and tell you exactly where it comes from so wow. that's kind of cool 
Well, a a lot of what we're talking about right now is just making me think of this recent episode we did with Sophia Aziz about the ancient Egyptian death industry. Um, Well, just first of all, the incredible scientific processes that allow you to source materials. But of course, in her case, this biomedical Egyptology, they're applying these these amazing techniques, some entirely non-invasive to studying the mummies in ways that have never been possible before without you know completely desecrating them and, and destroying the remains which is of course problematic on many levels but in addition you know she was talking Nigel about how they're seeing evidence for the reuse and recycling of um, sarcophagi and coffins mm. so I, I had never heard about that in terms of grave goods generally but it, I mean it makes sense totally makes sense if you look at the you know the longevity of the civilization and everything that there must have been um a reuse of objects so maybe it was approved maybe that was it was acceptable you know within families so maybe some of the looting isn't looting um we know that Hmm. the priests when they cleared out the valley the kings um because they claimed because of looting um and they moved to a lot of the mummies the really famous mummies that we all know and love, you know, the Ramses and the Setis and the rest of them, they moved them to what, you know, the French call a patch, um, a tomb at Delabakri. And they, for some reason, they, they rewrapped them, a lot of them. So they unwrapped them and rewrapped them. Now, were the priests removing precious items mm. from them? The priests got a bit bored halfway through the procedure, it appears, because they mislabeled some people. So some people had the wrong little note on their toes. And oh, no. they then had a, a bit of a joke as well. So at the end, they put a pet monkey and a pet dog at the end of the corridor talking to each other. Um, and that, that pet monkey and, and dog are in the Cairo Museum now in the same position, talking to each other. They are my favorite mummies in the entire world. Um, they are so cute. And I famously, I, we were talking before we started recording about uh, um, a colleague of mine, Josh Bernstein, uh, an explorer and adventurer. I famously went um, abseil down in some bizarre little tin bucket into that tomb with him for a show we did. One of the very, very first TV shows we I ever did. And when we were thinking about starting Press Preservers, um, when I was working in the Valley of the Kings, and we went into that tomb. And it's just a literally a nondescript um, chaff tomb, but it's of there that was the perfect place to hide all these amazing names of Egyptian history because no one would look there for them. So that was quite an adventure. I mean, that's an amazing thing, the TV for me anyway, as an archeologist, I was obviously had an amazing job. And first job out of college was working in the Valley of the Kings. I was incredibly lucky. Yeah, Um, tell us, let's back up for a second. First of all, all right, so you you are um, and have been for many years um, an archaeologist, an Egyptologist. I don't know whether you prefer one versus the other, Nigel. I would but, say I'm an archaeologist that specialized in Egyptian history. So it's a bit yeah, of a mouthful. Right, because they are I wouldn't different call myself, I wouldn't call myself an Egyptologist. I think that's more uh, history-based uh, or whatever. But I was previously before that. I was an accountant for 15 years. Um, my I didn't know that. Always, I didn't yeah. know you were an accountant. Wait yeah, a minute, back up. No, you know what? I can smell it. That fits the personality and the dry wit. I mean, the British Thank too, you. but I smell it. I smell it. <laughs> All right. So wait. Okay. I'm 
mind blown now. Okay, so you went right from university to a job in the Valley of the Kings as an accountant? Yeah, the second <laughs> Tell university. Tell us how did remember, this work? I, remember, I'm ancient. I'm 55 next week. So um, I went back to college at 35. 50 is the new 20. Sorry? <laughs> 50 is the new 20. Yeah. <laughs> it so better be, dude. college dudes. at 35, you. which, you know, at 35 then, back in whatever, 2000 it was, right? Wow. Uh, so you retrained. As an archaeologist. Yeah, yeah. I did that too, Nigel. I don't think we knew this about each other. So no. I went right out of university. Well, I did university as an 18-year-old, but I worked in management consulting, advertising, and marketing before I went back for my Oh, my wow, that sounds as dull as mine. In anthropology. Yeah, probably. But I didn't do it for as long as you were an accountant. So. But the only good thing about my accountancy career, or I was actually a credit manager, so dealing with debt collection, but uh, business to business. Ooh, not, were not you a bruiser? Business. Um, Did you have I brass was, knuckles? No, I, it was business to business. So it's a bit more civilized than that. Mainly taking people out for dinner to get paid. Um, but I worked in really good companies, really fun companies. I worked in Time Out, the magazine. Um, I worked in I worked in Av for Avid, the um, the film editing software people. So I had a kind of into the TV and, and film world, but as from the other side. Um, so I think my first job was in an insurance company, and that was when I realized, you know, if I'm going to be do this kind of work, I do, I can't do it in this kind of environment, you know. So and I worked in a hotel, which was great fun. So I think if you're going to do accountancy or you're going to do that kind of, you know, admin-based jobs, you need to be in an organization at least that's fun things, you know? Um, yeah, when I was in an advertising agency, we worked with people like Mickey Rourke and the women he beat up. I wouldn't exactly call yeah. it fun, but it was, we used to, I used the title to ride the on the private jet down to Miami Beach and we'd be up on the rooftop of the Delano. All the models would be around. And, you know, my job was the peon to organize everything. I, I was an accounting exec. But, I, you know, I, yeah, I saw some crazy stuff doing that. I mean, it are, still did my head. Are in, you who but... they based Jenna Maroney on in 30 Rock now? <laughs> because there was a season where all of her references that she would throw to her previous like experiences would all be about Mickey Rourke. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, like, like that time Mickey Rourke threw me off his boat or that yeah, time Mickey Rourke to tried say, to feed me to his shark. <laughs> he is actually a really sinister dude. Uh, he's got um, a very scary physical presence. Is he even still alive? I mean, last oh, time yeah, I saw he's him, alive. he was in a movie and he looked like he had had so much plastic surgery. He was unrecognizable. He's alive. He's uh, he's kicking. Larry King, not alive, but. Oh, uh, yeah. Passed away today. Well, I did to think the, the girlfriend's of, name. Of the, the completely opposite English version of that, which is um, um, when I was a timeout, I kidnapped Babs, Babs Windsor, which you know is like the British, she's the British icon. She just re recently died. We all adore <laughs> Babs Windsor. And that was my claim to fame for many years. Along with my other claim to fame, which is on my bio, is that um, I once dusted Tutankhamun. But I think how did you end up making this decision to go into archaeology, going to school to do that. And then how on earth did you get that lucky to you land in the Valley of the Kings right out of school? Three things. Please. That was three, my uh, question three, too. Three things at once. I think you need like, you know, bad things have to happen sometimes to make, you know, new things happen as well. So um, my mother in 2000 was uh, diagnosed with cancer and she was had six months to live. Um, my five-year relationship like went down the pan. 
So um, then I got made redundant, but not only did I get made redundant, me and my assistant, wonderful Lucy, um, we had to shut down our London branch uh, of the company we we're working for. So we made everyone redundant and then we literally made ourselves redundant oh. and oh. Uh, packed up the building and sold everything and had a drink and no, went home and cried. Not to be insensitive, so, but I just found out that the you Brits say made redundant and I I love it. I just found this out a few weeks ago. Not trying to soften your story. Yeah, redundant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a wonderful it is a little world. bit not more you, romantic sounding than anymore. you're fired. No yeah, you're sacked. All right, sorry, Nigel, please. Yeah, you see, they can't sack you. So they can't sack you in the UK for that. If a company, um, you know, is obviously having bad times and stuff, they can't actually sack you. So they have to make you redundant. They have to give you money. Um, so um, the good thing was that the money was very good um, as well. So the money was good. And I just bought an apartment um, in East London uh, that I really did love, but also that actually doubled in price in six months. I mean, nuts, crazy oh, boom God. time. So I thought, actually, I can use this money. I can use this time. What am I going to do, you know? So um, I decided I wanted to do Egyptology. That's originally what I wanted to do. So I went to the history department at UCL. And actually, they might mind me saying this, but they were very, very unfriendly. And they basically said to me that there was no career for the 35-year-old in Egyptology. And especially one that didn't speak, um, had perfect French and German, because you would need that. No mention of Arabic, just French and German. And um, why French and German? Literally, how colonial? <laughs> Sorry, why French and German? Oh, it, it was, it was nuts. I mean, a lot of the work, obviously, a lot of you know, a lot of studies, a lot of the original work into Egyptian history is in French and German. So I can understand them saying that. Um, but they were just so kind of negative about, you know, someone 35 year old going back. And they literally pointed across the road where the Institute of Archaeology was and said, I think you'll do better over there. Oh. And so I went, I went to the Institute of Archaeology and they were amazing. Literally, they were like, OK, so what? You're 35. So what? Hell yeah. You have to understand that there are issues about what you're going to do, what your career is going to be. But you don't need to worry about that at the moment. Um, and they signed me up for Egyptian archaeology BA and they said look you need to do a BA even though I already had uh, a degree they said you really should start at, at the bottom and then you know retrain completely and then you can do an MA afterwards which is what I did I did an MA straight after um, and it was literally I know people always say that it's cliche right the best years of my life thing but it was amazing Aww. it was absolutely Aww. amazing there were lovely people they really helped us. There was a lot of people in our year in the um, sort of my age bracket as well, because I was thinking, you know, everyone will be, you know, 18, 19 years old. But it turned out that they'd done a little social experiment. They decided to take like one third of their intake in as, you know, freshers, like 18, 19 year olds, and then take another third in as mature students. But literally in England, the mature student is classified anyone from 21 onwards. And then another group of really mature students so anyone kind of 30 plus so the oldest guy on our course was this uh, wonderful chap ken who was 72 and so suddenly there was all these old folks there and it was just like oh wow this is great you know so what it's not only young folks you know um, you know what i just realized something nigel as far as finishing archaeology school 
I was even older than 35. I was 37 when I got my PhD, finally, because it took me so long. <laughs> so. Well, I'm going to beat both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. That's so wonderful. Yeah, that's I really mean, awesome. Screw so the first place you went to. A, uh, sorry, by a really weird quirk of fate, um, with my uh, thesis when I was doing my BA, I wanted to do it because I realized that uh, what I wanted to focus on quite quickly was that, you know, I made my first trip to Egypt in 97 and that's why I decided to study. Because when I first went to Egypt, I came back and I did an evening class. And actually my professor on that evening class, she's the one who pushed me. Uh, this was the Burbeck, the adult uh, learning part of UCL. She pushed me to go for the degree. She said, no, you can do it. And she, you know, really helped me um, get the confidence to be able to write essays and all that kind of stuff and start learning again after years and years of, of not learning. Um, but when on the visits to Egypt I had, I realized that, yeah, at first it's like what hits you is the preservation. It's the pre it's just you cannot believe, you know, you're seeing these monuments um, in such incredible after all this time, you know. And then you start yeah. to realize actually they're actually quite fragile. Um, and they are suffering and tourism is affecting them and they are disappearing before our very own eyes. And in Egypt, they actually call it the, you know, the pyramid effect. People really believe that things will just continue forever, even if you don't have to do anything to save it. Um, so I decided I wanted to specialize in site management and conservation. And um, I wanted to do my thesis on the pyramids because the pyramid site of Giza is basically you know the most mismanaged site in his human history and it's so many people have tried to get it right there and cocked it up and like every generation has a go at it and they still mess it up so I wanted to look at all these interventions over the years and see how people had tried to you know look after the site um, but actually a girl on my course had already signed up for it she'd already picked Giza to do her thesis right so mm, can't do that and so I thought well what's the second most famous site in Egypt the Valley of the Kings and weirdly of course that had had no management plan Giza kind of had a management plan that was in progress but it was only the time that UNESCO and others in the world um, heritage authorities were saying that these sites should have site management plans so the whole industry of site management was kind of starting off. Um, so that's, you know, literally this, like a fluke. I did my thesis on the Valley of the Kings. And one of um, an Egyptologist I know, she said to me, well, the person you need to speak to is Kent Weeks, because he's the guy, right? He's the man. He's the, he is the Valley of the Kings. He's, he knows everything about it. So I approached him at a, a conference or, and, or something. She kind of literally had to push me out of the crowd to him <laughs> and I was like oh you know I, I, I was so timid you know whatever and I was like oh you know I'm doing my thesis on you know my undergraduate thesis and whatever and he was so nice he was so supportive and said send it to me I'll take a look at it and all that kind of stuff so then fast forward a bit when I was doing my master's and I went out to meet him in Cairo and he said to me, he had just literally, I mean, like, I think in life, you know, there are these things, there are these moments where you are in the right place at the right time, you know? And so we went for a beer at the Nile Hilton and he had just come from the Ministry of Antiquities. And he, he said, look, they've asked me to write the, the management plan on the Valley of the Kings. 
And he said, look, I know what that means in terms of, uh, I know how I want to save it, how I want to conserve the site, but I'm, I'm an old fogey. I don't know what the current terminology is or what you know the current uh, sort of legislation and all those kind of things are. Because we were working with the Antiquities Ministry and the World Monuments Fund uh, and to produce it. And um, so he said, you want a job? What you, no, actually, you put it, he said, what are you doing after this beer? And I said, well, I was <laughs> going to go back to England and, you know, hang out for the summer and whatever. And he went, don't do that. Stay here. And then I oh ended up in Egypt for 15 years. <laughs> that is such a great story. What are you doing after this beer? Not what are you doing when you're done with school? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And I literally, I, I called I um, or emailed or whatever it was, the college, because I was halfway through my master's and they were like, OK, it's fine. It's OK. We'll defer it for a year and then you can do it part time. So I actually ended up doing most of my work from Egypt and finished it while I was doing that, which is even irregular at the time. But they were fine. They, they said, obviously, the 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 whole plan of doing the degree and everything is to get a job. Right. And you've got the job. So we need to help you and what a finish job. the degree. What yeah, a job. It, was, it was amazing. I mean, that was another like period. Six years I worked in the Valley of the Kings and that was like and just amazing. It was unbelievable. I have a question actually, Nigel. Um, so I'm just interested and, and curious as to what your viewpoint is on this. Uh, you know, it, since getting your degree and completing your studies and, and getting into archaeology, ha- have you seen the field change at all significantly? since you got into it versus, I mean, I know COVID and stuff has affected everything now, but I'm, I'm just curious as to, as to what you think or of what you've observed in terms of how the field has changed um, since when you first got into it to now. I think the goal is very different. Uh, I mean, obviously society changes, you know, so um, the way we treat, for instance, you know, indigenous archeologists, um, Egyptology, you know, particularly is a, you know, colonial discourse. Uh, one of my, you know, can you say a favorite academic but uh, academic I, I really admire is a chap from UCL called Stephen Quirk and he's written at length about how you know we colonized Egypt and what we did to Egypt uh, but he also frames this question he said exactly where is ancient Egypt and it suddenly got us all thinking it's like what do you mean what do you mean where is ancient Egypt ancient Egypt is Egypt he said well it's been invented we created ancient Egypt ancient Egypt out of Egypt. So ancient Egypt belongs to the West. It belongs to the scholars and the archaeologists and all the visiting digs and the, the museums around the world. But actually, there is no such place. There's only yeah. Egypt. And, you know, I was told, even at college, I was told, you know, the ancient Egyptians had, the modern Egyptians had no connection to the um, uh ancient Egyptians, there was no great love of the culture, there was no connection with the people, not from everybody, not everybody believed that, and there was a lot of academics who were coming along who were fighting that kind of discourse and saying, no, this is simply not true, and you can look at everything from DNA to folklore to how even what the Egyptians eat now, and there are massive connections, you know, to ancient I mean, the one example I always give is the... um, uh, Egyptians call their football team the pharaohs. End of story. Okay, end of story. Their national team is the pharaohs. I, you know, I have I've met a lot of Egyptians, obviously, who were kind of indifferent to their heritage and stuff. I'm kind of indifferent to Stonehenge. Ooh, uh, you know, like, well, you know, great. You know, uh, that doesn't do it for me. 
Tower of London. Mm, yeah, lovely. Um, you know, <laughs> you don't love the Tower much. of London? Well, it is what it is, but oh. I'm not going to get excited. By I am it. disappointed by that. Um, okay. And Stonehenge really is not. No, I'm sorry, well, I'm just, it's like every other of the thousands of stone megalithic circles and whatnot. Yes, I agree. Exactly. It's one of so, many. you know, and Egyptians, when you talk to them, when you start to understand, there is this deep rooted uh, pride in their heritage and that's really trends. I mean, if you look at uh, the, the huge number of young people now in Egypt working in archeology, span um, in heritage, not just in, they used to work in tourism as guides and stuff, but there's a lot more people now involved in the heritage sector. And in fact, one of the things I'm really proud of as past preservers and one of the kind of COVID benefits that we've been able to do is to actually get more Egyptians on screen. Um, because again, the model was always flying the foreign expert to do the recording. Um, whereas there are plenty of, you know, indigenous archaeologists yeah. who could oh, do it. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And, and that's really been a sea change. And much as the BBC, I also give this example, BBC decided a few years ago that they were no longer going to fly in, you know, their reporters um, from the UK to do every, every little story in like, you know, Cairo and, and Dubai and the rest of it. And they would have local correspondence. A, it makes sense because the person knows the area better and also it saved them money. Um, and so, okay, if there's a big thing, you know, the global correspondent flies out and that kind of thing. There is no reason to have, you know, to constantly fly in specialists. And of course, a lot of foreigners work in Egypt anyway. So there's that, you can also interview them when they're working there. But, you know, Egypt, to have Egyptian voices um, talk about their past, I think that's, it's incredibly important. And so there are lots of new work in that area, definitely. That, that is a great transition to the question that I wanna ask is, I wanna ask you about the history of past preservers itself. What inspired this, this creation? this company? Beer and wine. Well, we would, when I was working for Dr. Weeks in the Valley of the Kings, you can imagine that a lot of people, a lot of film crews came to the Valley of the Kings and Dr. Weeks would appear on camera, he would do interviews on, because the thing that his real big claim to fame is that he rediscovered the largest ever tomb that's been found in Egypt, which is KB5, which is in the Valley of the Kings. Because his job, what he was trying to do was to create a very detailed archaeological um, map of the Valley of the Kings. So before I started working with him, he visited every tomb and mapped them and recorded them. And when he was in this one called KB5, um, they literally, it, a lot of the tombs, I mean, there are, you know, um, 73 now in the Valley of the Kings known, but a lot of them are inaccessible. There's probably only about 30 or something you can really get into. And What's happened over the years, flash flooding and collapsing of the tombs makes them you know, impossible to, to, to get through unless they've been excavated. And this tomb, he went into it and a lot the main room had been mapped by Sir Harry Burton, that's it. Sir Harry Burton, I think he's called. And um, he had literally drawn this little map and it was like one room with a corridor. That was it, right? He said, that's it, that's all there is. Mm. And so when Dr. Weeks went in, he sent like a young boy it's always a young boy or a donkey in archaeology. And um, they got them to crawl. <laughs> Donkeys are really good with trowels. Donkeys and goats find a lot of things. And oh, actually, normally there's an old lady with the donkey and the goat. Um, 
So they sent this little boy, or the youngest, thinnest member of the crew, I think it was, to crawl across the top of this debris with a torch and point it down this corridor. And he basically, he's, he couldn't see a reflection. The torch just kept shining, right? So there wasn't meant to be a corridor, not that long. And so anyway, long story short is he, he, he raised the money to, um, to go into it and find out what it was. And they discovered that it's actually um, the tomb of the sons of Ramses II. And it's currently, I believe, at something like 140 rooms and getting bigger every season. Oh, yeah, so they just keep finding more and more. And it's really unique. It's built on a situation. It's almost like a multi-story car park. Um, it, it's never, other tombs don't exist pre or after that in the same design. So in the rooms, now they've never found, they found some human remains in there, but they haven't found the, the coffins of the sun, of the sarcophagi of the sons. But they found some human bones by the door, which met, led people to believe that the looters had dragged the bodies there. But another theory is, of course, that actually there's another level where the actual burials are within the tomb. Because the rooms upstairs that you walk into as you go in a, a sort of street level, can you say, they're too small. They're really too small for to be the burial places of these uh, you know, important sons of Ramses II. So they're probably offering chapels to them um, where it would have been open during you know, um, a, a period after their death. Um, so the burials could exist somewhere else. So when he rediscovered this place in 1995, I think it was in 1997, it went huge right around the world. So um, he did a lot of TV, a lot of TV. Um, and Cruise, obviously Cruise, any TV has always been interested in Valley of the Kings, but to have a new discovery, they wanted to come. So when I get to it, basically he, we, he would ask me and Kelly Krauss, my business partner that we that set up past preservers with me, she was working with us and he'd always say oh can you help the crew out you know can you uh do some research for them can you help them with where to film all that kind of stuff all the little questions right that they're gonna ask that um they wanted to know so we would do that we would literally you know help them out with their shoots and uh then at night they would take us out for beer and chips or whatever beer and chicken probably um and we did that maybe every few months. We and we appeared on camera a few times ourselves, did some interviews, talked about our pet theories on the on the Valley of the Kings and stuff. And um, then the, the producers, when they would leave, in the they would say to us, you know, you guys should think about doing this as a business. And we're like, oh, you know, we're busy here, right? We've got a full time mm -hmm. job. And then our contract came to an end. We finished the Valley of the Kings site management plan. Um, so I, we had this, it's like, what are we going to do? And we actually both went back to London for a while and we got jobs. We got corporate jobs in Heritage. And that's when I realized that one of the reasons I'd left to be an accountant is because I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be in that kind of environment again. And so mm. I was in this office in Epsom, which is the biggest dump known to mankind. Sorry, Epsom people, but it really is an absolute hellhole. And, um, it was a huge corporate engineering company that had a heritage division. And I lasted three months and then I ran away and I ran off to Egypt. And basically me and Kelly, we cooked up this plan in the evenings over wine that if we teamed up with the fixers, now fixers do the logistics and the permits and all that kind of stuff in, in countries. But we thought we knew the fixers in Egypt. So we thought if we can team up with them, we can offer the producers creative fixing. Okay, So we can 
do research for them. We can check their stories. We can find locations. We can find experts for them. And, you know, it'll keep us employed, right? We didn't need to earn much to stay in Egypt. Um, and it just meant we didn't have to leave Egypt. Um, so that's where the idea was. It wasn't really a company then. We just thought, well, we could do it together. We could do it as like freelancers. But then we were really lucky again. And we got this really big contract, like our first job, um, a show called Bone Detectives with Body Moore. And we worked on the whole thing, like from inception all the way through to filming in Egypt uh, and the rest of it. So we helped them do absolutely everything, you know, develop the story, look for locations, uh, look for experts along the way. Uh, I think we worked on it for like three months or something. It was brilliant, you know, and it was a really good sort of learning curve for us to work out what we could help them with, things we couldn't help them with, like so the, the fixers would do those kind of, you know, logistics, hotels, flights, permits, all that kind of stuff, dealing with um, Egyptian bureaucracy that wasn't our skill set so we had to work out what our skill set was and how we could help them um, and that's what we did for the first two or three years probably we just did Egypt so we did production after production it was a really busy time for Egypt um, it was doing they were doing so many productions there which is pre-revolution and then the but the producers when they were leaving town would say oh, you know, I'm going to Rome. Do you know anyone there? Like, who does what you do? And be like, no, I don't. Or can you find me an expert in Greece or whatever? So we started working backwards to our contacts at university and everything and building a little database of experts. That's how it kind of started. And then more and more companies, you know, word, word of mouth producers would tell each other because it's a quite a small world the TV world, we're in a niche within a niche type thing. So these producers work on lots of projects and for different companies. So they would tell their friends and they would get in touch. So we thought actually what we need to do, we need to think bigger, we need to think outside of Egypt. Um, and that's where it started really growing into what it is now really, I suppose. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So once again, it starts with Egypt. Yeah, everything starts with Egypt. <laughs> and now Inspires we know. And, and so how how did you how did you first meet uh, the lovely Karen? How did you guys first? Physically, I think we met that time in New York, right, Karen? Well, I think that was, it was the... through past preservers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, I was looking for experts. We were doing. I don't know if we we're doing a particular casting that Karen applied for. Um, you know, we what we do essentially is our, we work with production companies. They're our partners. And the networks are our ultimate client, but we don't normally work directly with the network. And the producers will come to us and say they need, you know, a Roman expert in Bath next week, or they need, um, a, you know, a geologist or an historian or something to present to show. And then we put our, out our calls to our networks and to our databases. So often we discover new people like Karen through that when we have an interesting job something comes along, we get lots of new people. Um, and it might have been something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, um, I mean, I had registered. So the way past preservers works for people who um, want to work on camera is that you register, right? So it's, it, and I did it through a website and it was all, I mean, you know, no disrespect, but it's, it's the way the business works. It was all kind of impersonal. And I don't think I had any direct contact with you when I first registered, Nigel. But 
somehow you came back around to me and you said, look, you know, would, would you like to be part of this new kind of cadre we're creating? You, you were kind of creating this past preservers, presenters group for the yeah. first time to Too kind of P's, feature it though. on the website. So that's how we actually <laughs> connected. What? Too many P's. Too many P's. Well, I, I didn't name it, you did. <laughs> yeah, we did. And then at one point we ended up calling it Passers of as people, which didn't really help. It's still another P. Actually, someone <laughs> in the office did come up with one, well, one thing that was seven P's. I can't remember what that was at the end. But um, yeah, the thing was that we've always grown organically. I've always listened to other people in business in other walks of life as well that said, look, if you try and stick rigidly to a certain path, and it's, you know, you'll end up, it'll just go bust, it won't work. So when, you know, producers that we work with that, um, you know, that we really admired and we enjoyed working with, when they gave us feedback, like how we could change, what we could improve, obviously we listened to them, you know, you're stupid not to. So mm. often over the years, what they said was, you should be an agent as well. So don't just be casting, don't just be research. You should represent the experts because A, they need someone to, to represent them, to look after them in the in the world of TV. But also you're unique in a unique position that you're finding these new talent for TV. Um, and so otherwise someone else will just take them, right? So you're, you're finding them and then someone else will, will take them on and other agents will uh, snap them up. So we thought, well, yeah, let's look at our database. Let's look at people, not only who have the skill set to be presenters, because I often say it's a very different animal to being um, a contributing expert. Some people can do both, but some people can't. Some people can do one or the other and, and, and not the other. Um, and it's a rare person that can do both. And um, that's where we would try to look for those that could do that, but also who wanted to do it right as well. So there isn't that many academics who want to have a sort of side career on, uh, on TV and in the media as well. So the person's got to want to do it, got to have the skill set to do it as well. Um, and for us, it was like, also, we, we want the new ones, right? We, it's no good trying to get the ones who are already doing TV um, because they'll already be signed up. So that's when I think, yeah, you're right, Can We reached out and said, look, you know, we think you would be a good fit um, to join this new lineup. Um, and yeah, you know, I was I was sort of like, wow, really? I felt like I had been picked out of a lineup at the prom or something. Oh. <laughs> I was like, are you sure? Why? Because <laughs> like, I had just line up against this... the wall. No, I was. I had only done a couple really small bits with BBC One back here in the UK. Because when when you and I connected, I was actually already back in the states back when I was there too. So anyway, well, thank you for having faith in me. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and I mean I think it's you know sometimes obviously you take a risk sometimes it does work out sometimes it doesn't and you know but I mean if we look at you know what Karen's done I mean Karen last year won't mind me saying it like worked more than anyone we have you know she uh, a lot of work um in fact one of our clients is now thinking of renaming the sh their show the Karen Bellinger show um, <laughs> Um, if so, only I think yeah. that's not exactly what they said but that's a very nice <laughs> positive spin exactly on it it's not exactly what they said but they said it was turning into that um, so I think you know the, the thing is I always say to our experts whether they're doing like a two hour interview or whatever is it is a small industry like I said before um, producers tend to work across different companies across different shows so people you know yes Karen can 
deliver and can do the work and do the research is always prepared. That's one of the first things to be prepared. You need to be a team player for this kind of thing as well. You need to be someone who's very easy to work with and just gets on and is not demanding, you know, hair and makeup and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just what I demand all the time. Of course, absolutely. (laughs) Um, You know, so we've had issues like that with people, you know, whatever, but they don't last very long, those sort of people. And they, obviously clients want to work with someone. Yes, they want someone who can deliver what they need. Of course, that's fundamental. But they also want to work with nice people, right? We all want to. You oh, want, yeah. You don't want... A, yeah, a, a, of course, you will put up with a certain amount if someone's brilliant, but it's like you get to that point where it's like, no, this isn't worth it. Well, I think, um, in, yeah, I think at the age of the internet, especially like casting has just changed so much. Cause like, if you're an asshole, you're so easily replaceable, you know, for the most part, it's like, there's, there's access to all these other names. So if you're difficult, well, bye. Like, yeah. well, there's you know, also bye. coming from like a narrative film background, like years and years and years of narrative film and having to treat, and this is purely only an American thing, by the way, <clears throat> having to treat known name, Sometimes you oh, know, like they're like royalties. Yeah, your feet must never touch the ground. They must be given some ridiculous you know, Evian bottled water. You know, it, it, stereotypes, stereotypes for a reason. There is a great deal of truth in this. Um, and a lot of that is set up by their agents and a lot of that is set up that, by the producers. And then they are, of course, expecting that same behavior. When it comes to the unscripted world, the history world, being out in the field, the much smaller team and working with people like Karen, working with people like Sheila, it is just, they take care of themselves. They, they look how they want to look. We don't, because, you know, there's no real director in this world and we're not, what they look like is of little importance to the content in which we're making. Yes, they are the on-camera talent and they should look as good as possible, but there's no trailer. I mean, one of the things that I, my favorite things about Karen is when we first saw Karen's content in her reel, is just this, and I refer to it all the time, and I love it because it's so true to who she is. She's in the back of a hot car, sweating, looking like she's an actual archeologist doing an actual job, but she's on TV and she's recording on her phone. And Mm. you're not getting that with your, you know, your Meryl Streep's and your Catherine Keener's. um, Your J-Lo's. Your J-Lo's, no, Karen Karen and other people at Past Preservers, your other on-camera talent, and, and, on-camera talent in this field are academic. They are in the field getting their hands dirty, so they expect to be dirty. Um, I mean, occasionally there is someone that it goes to their head a bit, you know. It's oh, kind for of all, sure. You know, and we try to help them, I mean, get over that, you know what I mean? But sometimes it <laughs> is impossible. You try to have an intervention, Nigel. <laughs> I do like an intervention. I do like a good intervention. And, you know, obviously we've got two sets of clients. We, you know, our experts are our clients as well. You know what I mean? Our experts pay us, you know. So, um, but our clients are our clients as well. So it's, it's sometimes a very difficult balancing act if someone isn't prepared for the work that they should be doing. If someone expects something different, you know, obviously things like fees and stuff is, is, can be a big issue. Um, you know, one of the reasons we exist is to make sure that people, the experts don't get ripped off, you know what I mean? And the majority, I mean, literally 99% probably of the production companies are fantastic about it. They only, you know, want to negotiate the rates because literally it is, they're working on very, very tight budgets and stuff. Yeah. So, but they will pay. They want to pay. There are some that don't want to pay. 
and oh, they're God. few and far between and they're terrible and we just you learn not to deal with them and i advise our experts not to deal with them and there are some who want you know ridiculous terms and conditions uh, you know, again, we, we, we have to spot that. We have to say, do not sign this piece of paper um, and that kind of thing. So we have to protect them. But at the same time, we understand our clients, you know, they're out to make a product. They've only got a certain time to make it. They've only got a certain amount of money. So it's it's a balancing act. And there's got to be respect on, on both sides. So I know that, you know, Karen is always so well prepared and stuff, but we also, you know, we reach out to our experts before the shoot. We make sure they have their notes, that they've done their research, that are there any questions, especially at the beginning, like the first few times that someone does it. Um, of course, it's going to be weird. It's going to be, it's, it's completely different to their normal working life. And some people love it. They absolutely really enjoy it. And others, it's like pulling teeth for them. Hmm. And they'll come back to us and they'll say, I can't do that again, Nigel. I literally, you know, I mean, I sweated through all my clothes or whatever. You know, and it's just like, I can't. <laughs> it's just not me. Um, and others are like, oh, my God, that was so cool. That was fun. <laughs> um, and they want more. Um, so, you know, we have to help them through that process. And literally, I mean, there's only, I literally can count on one hand the people that we've had that have kind of misbehaved um, over the years. And, you know, we've done at Christmas there, we just had our 70th production uh, go on screen. So that, I think that's a good yeah. ratio of people, but, you know, whatever. And, you know, we try to make them clear of what the package is, what they're going to get. You know, they're not going to get the choice of colored smarties or whatever, right? Um, but most production companies, and I think Karen will back up on this, they try to treat you well. They try to look after people, um, you know, oh, and make yeah. sure they're fed and watered and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's in everybody's benefit. I mean, mm. you know, it's like any collaborative effort. It's, it's only going to be as strong as the weakest link. And if anybody in that chain feels unsupported or, you know, out of their depth or whatever, it, it's going to cause a problem for the whole thing. We did have one girl who to remain nameless, but she, she's no longer with us. She um, tweeted on the morning of a shoot um, that it was outrageous that she was working for um, this big network and that they had not supplied hair and makeup. And she was having what? to do. She was having to do our own um, on the way to the shoot. Oh but no! Because of that tweet, the director saw the tweet and sacked her. He said, "I don't want to work with someone like this. I can't do." That's he said, just so weird. No, it's just. No. It's not like we're peddling, you know, makeup on QVC or something. I mean, it's not <laughs> acting. I find yeah. that really weird. It's it is weird. It's Honestly. like they That's only just, just bizarre. I, I mean, I mean, it was someone who was very very. I can say proud of her appearance. I can understand that. She's very, you know, very, um, she took care of herself. Yeah. yeah so she so, knew how to do it herself. What's well, the exactly. problem? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, she probably would have done a better job than yeah, she, someone like that probably wouldn't have been satisfied with whatever the result was of a. And we, you know, we've had people who've also priced themselves out of the market as well. We've had that. That's an issue that once someone gets a little bit of success, it is, a niche within niche and there is only limited funds for these kind of projects yeah it's different if you're hosting it or your presenter there'll be more funds available but it's not hollywood funds and so we do get to that point where some experts where they've done quite a few and then they'll say like well i want x now i won't work for less than that and it's like well sadly you, won't, you won't get work. the work <laughs> yeah, we have to be honest with them you know what i mean you won't get the work because 
there will be many other people, may not be as good as you even, but there'll be other people they can find that will step in. It's like the companies that don't want to pay, right? So often yeah. I'll say to my uh, experts, I'll say, look, it, it's okay, just walk away. It's okay, just don't do it. Because someone will do it. There will be someone who wanted for the experience and want to get the, on their face on TV. And that's fine, maybe, when you're starting out. But I think it sets a precedent. And, you know, um, everyone should be paid for their time. You know, I always say, and as I, Karen's probably heard me say it a thousand times, I say to the client, if they mention there's no funds, I'll say like, okay, so like the director, the cameraman, the sound, they're all working for free. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. And they're like, oh, no. And it's like, well, why should the expert or, you know, be the one person who's there who's not being paid, you know? Um, yeah. And normally well, at that Especially point, since oh. in this in this form of, of television, I mean, it, it doesn't exist without the expert, frankly. I mean, it's not scripted, right? And it's it's contributing your expertise. And yes, there's uh, often a beat sheet or narrative framework or whatever, but, you know, you're not memorizing lines. You're actually delivering things that you've spent years and years acquiring the experience and skill to be able to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But in the main, like I said, you know, the vast majority of clients understand it. And the first question they'll say is, is what, the, what is the person's fee? You know what I mean? That's the first, can they afford them? Yes, they're, they're concerned that can they afford someone? Can it fit into their budget? But they don't say, you know, start off saying, oh, you know, we, we haven't got any money. Mm -hmm. uh, we've avoided those people and they're few and far between anyway. And um, of course, occasionally there are projects like not for profit things and, uh, you know, this sort of stuff that we say, hey, you know, that's great. We, there was a thing a while back with, um, oh God, what's the filmmaker called? He does this, the a day in the life thing, and he does it like every 10 years. Um, oh God, I can't remember his name now um he's like a famous director and he did it like 10 years ago and he did it this year he gets people to record parts of their day and then puts together this film of literally a snapshot in time of what's going on at that particular period i remember his name now but um his pr people like got in touch with us and said look you know your experts would be great we'd love to see what an archaeologist does for their day um and that kind of thing and they pre-choose obviously some people to go in the film you know, um, and it was like, well, of course, you want want to be in something like that, right? Because it's huge, you know, so thing. Um, <laughs> his name might come back to me. But, you know, there's some things like that. that it's like, great, of course, do that. It's worth it. You know what I mean? Or our experts often get invited on the news. Now, the news doesn't pay. So, but you can go on like Sky New or BBC, Sky or, New, or BBC or something like that, or CNN, and talk about, I don't know, the historical aspect of, you know, some royal family news or whatever it is, um, or some repatriation story. And you'll be seen by, you know, 14 million, 50, 20 million people in a few minutes, right? Whereas the documentaries you do are going to be seen by a couple of million if you're lucky. So yeah, I always right. say, do it. It's worth it. If it's not too difficult for you, if you can manage to get there and that sort of thing, and you're, they only normally want you for a few minutes anyway. Um, right. Well, and, and that's the key with that. So totally that I think anybody should be open to doing that, um, whether they're aspiring to a side gig or even a full-time gig in paid TV work, but also just the level of, um, of 
preparation that's required for something like that is is like it's just not comparable to what you'd need to do to prepare no. adequately for a, a, a proper you know documentary or you know one of the panel shows that that's the heaviest lifting in terms of preparation because you can have anywhere <laughs> up to 13 or 14 stories to deliver in one marathon filming session that's grueling um you know and that certainly deserves compensation but to be on the news for a few minutes yeah and that's often you know as well that's important that we explain that to our experts that it isn't just turning up on the day it is being prepared it is doing your research um because you know i think they could just turn up on the day for one of those but but the news thing normally, like you said, normally the, the news, you're talking about something that you know a lot about. Exactly. It's your world. I, when I was living in Egypt, I became the to-go-to person for Sky and BBC for when they wanted like a quick, you know, two minute on the latest discovery. So I was I probably saw you on TV when I no. lived here the first time. I, I'm so <laughs> sad I didn't know to be watching for you, Nigel. So I was, you know, I thought I'd always say to them, just put like, you know, past preservers underneath my name and that's it. And then hopefully somebody Googles it, right? Because it's just worth, you know, and you've been seen by millions, as you said, and all they're doing is really asking for a bit of context about our latest discovery. So when you are now, obviously you're catering a great deal to on-camera talent, but a lot of these shows, whether it's a panel show or it's a more in-depth uh, doc style show, are you also providing research talent as well to some of these companies or are they primarily hiring their own internal researchers, academic researchers from the field outside of your network to generate these stories before the experts talk on them? It depends. Um, we prefer to obviously be involved as soon as early as possible in a project um, because I think we can shape it better. So we did a show um, for a wonderful company out of Dublin and London called Rare TV. They were called 360 and they're now Rare TV. Um, they, they did Egypt's Unexplained Files um, about 82 years ago, 18 months ago. And we worked with them from the very beginning. So like day one, they came because they knew us through another project. And they said, look, we're putting this thing together. What we want to do is, even though it's using only archive footage from previous documentaries and news items, we want it to be bang up to date. So we want to ask the questions everyone wants to ask about Egypt. So they had three or four writers, I believe. And these writers would come up with like, you know, three, four hundred questions about Egypt. And then every week I would fly over to Dublin and sit with them and talk through and just literally debate these, you know, stories um, and say, you know, no, no, this is total, you know, bollocks. You cannot say this. This is, you know, whatever. <laughs> or, you know, or this is actually, no, you really should think about this angle. You should go that way. And then we started picking the experts that would suit those subjects. And we had, in the end, I think 30 something experts. And so the show itself was just, as I said, like old documentaries from two or three years ago, even longer. But then I would be checking the news that week that they were filming. And so if something came up in Egypt that was relevant, they would ask the expert straight away, well, how does this, you know, the, the new discovery in Sakara affect this uh, theory, you know, that kind of thing. So that was really exciting to be involved in something, not just doing the research, but actually changing it as it's being filmed. And when it went out, I mean, a lot of these shows, you know, our, the problem is with academic community is getting them to, to be involved in these projects. They don't want to, they don't, you know, they see it as entertainment and not necessarily academic and that kind of thing. So 
we want them to say that you know this is being well made this is this put together well and so when it went out i mean universally the egyptologists said it was great it wasn't sensational it wasn't you know trying to you know come up with zany theories um but it was still interesting it was still tackling these big questions of ancient egyptian history um but there is an intelligent way to do it right and so because the story writers i think it was good that they weren't academics in a way because they just had all the things they'd learned and all the things they'd saw about egypt and then they wanted to know if that's true or not so it was almost like a, a myth busting um, which you know I enjoy a lot. Um, so that's the ultimate. Obviously, we would prefer to do that with every project, but it doesn't happen that way. Often, uh, people have in-house researchers who are often actually graduates in the field. They are history um, graduates and everything, but not always. They can just be you know researchers come from all sorts of walks of life, um, and they'll often say, "Oh, if we'd known about you." before we started the project, obviously we would have hired you to do it. So part of what we've been doing over the years is obviously, you know, is once people are aware of us, they come back um, to get us to do that part of the work. But if they don't know us and someone's just referred us, then it's often just, oh, you know, we need X number of experts um, to talk about the stories that they've already developed. And the Karen will tell you, I mean, they can vary obviously in their level of Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Some you have to just, yeah, start from scratch. Uh, it's actually amazing. And yeah, you and I have talked about this a lot, Nigel, it can be frustrating. I mean, when it works well, it's great. And I understand that, you know, the production companies, obviously, it's their baby, they, they want to be in the driver's seat with the content. But sometimes I, I think they really make it a lot harder for themselves, as well as as the, the contributors, <laughs> when they don't involve people like like us and and like Nigel and past preservers sooner when we can really streamline that whole process. Yeah, because then often they're trying to, you know, get the expert to say something they're uncomfortable with or get the expert to take a different angle on something because they know they want to stick to this story they've worked out, even though the story's not right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You yeah know, it gets um, tricky. There's a lot of diplomacy actually mm, on yeah. the spot. I have to say I've become a but, better politician doing this. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, we asked at the top of the discussion with the, you know, biggest discussion, uh, biggest misconceptions about ancient Egypt, B biggest misconception about the TV world that we work in, the documentary world, um, is that they edit your words to make you say something you didn't say. Oh, okay? my God. Yes. The Frankensteining of things. You're like, I didn't say that. <laughs> it has Somehow never... you didn't. <laughs> I have had people say to me, swear blind, it's happened. And I've said, OK, send me the link. Send me the proof of it. No, no, it happened to a friend of mine. Not to me. I, you know, I've worked, production companies obviously vary like everything else. You know what I mean? You work with some amazing people and you work with some people you'd be quite happy not to see again, right? But I've never, ever encountered this, um, whatever. Yes, of course, they sometimes want to cut people, what you'd say, down to a more succinct thing. And almost, I think Karen, I also double back me up on this as well. If you are uncomfortable, talking about a particular topic. So something that you think is a bit far out there, uh, you know, going into the realms of, you know, fantasy or aliens or whatever, you just say, you know, you say, sorry, you know, I'm not being, uh, you know, a diva, but that's, I, I, I can't go there. You know yeah, what I no. mean? Do you know what I say? I say, 
I really don't think you want me to say that. I don't think that's the message you want to convey because you will lose credibility. That's yeah. what I say. Yeah. And they're like, oh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I say, mm. but I could say it this way. And I, you know, there's always a way to phrase it and to debunk it. You just yeah. have to do it in a pithy enough sentence that they can't cut it down and make it sound like you're stating what they want. No, it actually is a really weird art more than a science doing this stuff sometimes. No, exactly. And, it, you know, that it also, and I keep, you know, saying this to and repeating this to experts, it is entertainment they're making. You know what I mean? It, this is stuff that people are watching while they're having their supper and whatever. They, it's not uh, an educational video. It's not uh, their latest, ex, you know, uh, live t um, uh, class, you know, on their syllabus or whatever. It's entertainment. It's got to be enjoyable. Yes, it can be. It can be both. You know what I mean? It can be educational. People can learn new things, and but they can still enjoy it as well. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's it, it. That's it can the be trick. Fun. Yeah. yeah, and it's very difficult to get it to be that, to get that combination of, you know, weight in the subject matter and at the same time to have, you know, credibility from the academic world, but then also have the average Joe, you know, who says, oh, I really enjoyed that. I always do the, my litmus test is I ask my neighbors, you know, like when a show goes out and they're not involved at all in this world, and I say to them, what do you think of it? You know what I mean? Did you enjoy it or not? And, that's really the best thing that kind of man in the street i think to say you know they'll tell you oh no i thought i was completely bored of that or whatever you know nigel this has been so fascinating and am amazing um i hope you've been enjoying the conversation as much as as i know i have yeah thank you nigel for your for your time i didn't know oh, any about welcome, your career huh? beginnings it's really cool cool awesome Cheers, right, folks. Nigel. take care bye awesome. bye Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.